This is See Africa, Breathe Africa, a weekly podcast made to bring Uganda, Rwanda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo closer to you. It's moderated by a travel consultant and cultural tourism expert, Miha Logar in Rwanda, and an Afrofusion musician, Joe Kahiri in Uganda. See Africa, breathe Africa. Niwo mundi kwenda runyase gwangunga utachi gwamnyinya iwerura ramamba ariya kwanga ndiamanga runyase gwangunga utachi gwamnyinya iwerura ramamba Niwo ladies and gentlemen so we begin another episode of See Africa Breathe Africa and um I'm so excited about this episode I think I'm getting used to being excited every time. I'll just hand over straight to Miha to get right into the conversation. Over to you, Miha. Yes, um, I'm going to take the lead just a little bit. Um, the origin of this particular episode is a comment left under the Washington Post article about us in April. Somebody was genuinely wondering how cultural slash community tourism could actually help protect the gorillas and the ecosystem. And to me, that was a little bit of a shock because we are part of it, we do it all the time. It seems so obvious to us, but not so obvious to other people. So I felt it was important to address it. And in addition to that, we also got a very handy question from a member of ours who was basically asking where one can get the best gorilla tracking experience, which park would be the best choice. So we are wrapping those two questions up into an episode that is going to lead you from gorillas to community conservation. And the main star of this conversation is Amy Porter with a lot of experience working with growers, gorillas and bonobos in the DRC while the rest of the roster will be read by The Voice right now. In this fifth episode, our conservation biologist, Amy Porter, is accompanied by Marcus Westberg, a wildlife photographer and writer, and Moses Turenawe, a tourism warden of Mgahenga Gorilla National Park. You can read more about them and their articles in the show notes. Thank you, The Voice of Santa Barbara. Let's just get straight to what we are about to discuss. Let's cut to the chase. A traveler's question. Which national park would be the best choice for my gorilla tracking experience? I've been talking for a little while now, so could I maybe ask Marcus to have, let's say, the opening words so that we spice it up a little? Uh, sounds like a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have been to all of the parks um, offering gorilla tracking in um, in eastern DRC, Rwanda and Uganda. Um, but I, I really don't think that I have one that I prefer over the others because the experiences are so different. Um, so I think it depends a lot on what you're after. I think if it's your first time and you, you have the money, um, Rwanda is a, is a good start going to Volcanoes National Park. It's comfortable, it's a tarmac road. 
um, but it's pricey. And and then in in uh, sort of order of increasing adventure, you can make Uganda your your next stop on that trip. And then if you're really up for something off the beaten track, then you head over to to DRC to one of the parks there, which is uh, where I've spent most of my time and probably would go back to first. In the show notes, you're going to find an article by Marcus where he lists all the parks in the order of accessibility. And you're also going to run into my own article written specifically to support this episode. I zeroed down on mountain gorillas. But of course, we also have Gravers gorillas. And it's a pleasure to greet among us Amy, who actually has plentiful experience with them. The one part that I find intriguing is that almost everywhere in the literature there is a claim that the size differs while you spending so much face-to-face with them are saying, I haven't noticed any size difference. What is the, re- the reality there? Yeah, the reality, I mean, they are bigger. Um, for me, I mean, gorillas are so massive. And I think what struck me the most when I first saw them was just how big they are and they're on the ground. You know, I've spent most of my career studying these really tiny cryptic monkeys that are high up in the canopy and you really have to strain to see them. And then to go from something like that to being on the ground with these huge animals just blew my mind. Everybody, when I was working there, would always comment on the size difference. And to me, that's not really the interesting thing. As a person who studies animal behavior, what's much more interesting to me are the social dynamics and the social ecology of these animals. And that's where I think you really start to see some differences. And one of the things that I noticed a big difference in them is just their movement patterns. And during certain times of the year, growers, gorillas will feed very heavily on fruit. And these fruit trees, it's a particular species called Myrianthus. And when they're fruiting, um, you know, it's not this clumped resource. The trees are very scattered. And so the gorillas, are targeting that species of tree and they will travel really long distances to get to them. And so for about three months of the year, they're constantly on the move and that can make tracking them a bit more challenging. To me, it can be really fun because you're seeing a different side of their behavior than you typically do. But in places like Rwanda, I mean, they're often eating leaves. And we know that when you're eating leaves, it takes a lot of time to digest. So the gorillas will spend a lot of time resting and they'll you know, be sitting down. And that's great for observations because you get to really see individuals up close. You get to see them well for extended periods of time and you get to see those close, um, cool things of behavior like grooming and playing. And when they switch their diet to fruit, rather than have those really... Um, interesting social dynamics with individuals in the group, they're mostly moving. And so it means as you're tracking them, you're moving a lot and you're going up and down these really steep hills and you feel like you're never stopping. And the gorillas are high up in the trees, which is also a cool sight because you've got this huge, you know, animal way up in the top of this canopy balancing on these really delicate branches. Um, But it makes it harder for them to see. So that was always, to me, kind of one of the big differences between the mountain gorillas and the growers gorillas. There's also a difference in in a family and social structure, right? Yes, that's another big thing. So in uh, mountain gorillas, you can have multiple silverbacks in a group. So you can have these big groups with two, three, four silverbacks. Whereas in growers gorillas, at least what we've seen so far is that you never get more than one silverback. Amy, your voice vibrates with love for these gorillas, but there was one particular among them that you actually wrote a story about for our blog. Uh, 
Uh, yes, Nabanga. He was a blackback male, which means he's an adult male, but he has not yet turned silver. So technically, he's capable of breeding, but he's that's regulated from the silverback in the group. So he's an adult male, but not yet silver. And so when I went to Congo, the whole experience kind of unfolded very quickly. I was finishing my PhD, and I got this offer to go to to Congo and study gorillas. And I thought, of course I want to go. And he's like, okay, but you need to come now. Like you, you've got two weeks to prepare. So I thought, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I was so determined to go. I just, I made it work. And then when I got there, so I didn't speak a word of French when I, when I left. I had spent my whole career working in South America, Latin America. So I spoke Spanish, but I didn't speak French. And when I got there, it was just, you know, hit the ground running. And so I had to, you know, I was fully immersed in this new system and new animal and new culture and new language. And then I only had about a month with somebody training me before I was left on my own. And not completely on my own. I mean, I was with trackers, but I didn't have any mentors to to help guide me. So I had to pick up things really fast. And with gorillas, you know, you're you're learning individuals. And that's one of the best things that I, I love about studying primates is you get to know individuals really well. And, you know, but it takes time. So in with mountain gorillas, this is one other difference between mountain gorillas and growers gorillas is one of the ways we identify them are by their unique nose prints. And in mountain gorillas, it's really pronounced. You can see it really well. But in growers gorillas, those lines on their nose are very subtle. And so it's much harder to use that as an identification marker. So you have to kind of rely on other things like maybe scars or um, personality can be used as an identification trait, different things like their ear shape. So it takes a while to learn individuals. And when you're starting any new project, you often feel lost. You feel like everything you're doing is wrong. You know, all the things that you learn much more about what doesn't work than what does work in terms of tracking them, identifying them. And there was this one moment where I was just feeling kind of exhausted from trying to learn everything. And the gorillas were on this big movement and they had stopped to settle down for a resting period. And this one particular blackback, Nabonga, had slowly walked past me and he could have just kept going, but he stopped. He stopped about you know seven meters in front of me and just laid down, put his head down and had his head resting on his hands and just stared at me. And it was just this moment of connection. I mean, who knows what he was thinking? He could have been thinking, who's this crazy lady? But for me, it was just this really intense moment of connection with him and with the project and with all of it. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, that's one of the things that a person can really experience while being with gorillas. There is something so close to us. It's really, really special. You can read much more about Amy in the show notes. We have an interview with her. We have her stories and all that. But we are now going to be moving a step forward because after her work with Grouse Gorillas, Amy ended up being with Bonobos, another kind of a primate that is uh, endemic to the DRC. Yeah, so bonobos were an entirely different experience. I spent two years with the Growers gorillas in Cahuzzi Biega and another community reserve called Incuba. And then I was offered a job to go to Western DRC and work with bonobos. Amy has taken us from one part of an immense country to another part of the same Congo and to make you feel this very special place a little bit deeper, the voice of Santa Barbara is going to read a story to you about the Democratic Republic of Congo, 
The Atlantic Ocean on the one side, a string of four African Great Lakes on the other, and the basin of the world's deepest river in between. That's the Democratic Republic of Congo, a mega country that dwarfs the other two countries of our region. Its size is comparable to that of Western Europe and has made it hard to govern. There isn't even a proper road connecting the capital Kinshasa in the west to the cities of the eastern side of the country. You just need to fly. The people of the DRC belong to hundreds of ethnic groups. Astonishingly hospitable, famous for great music and excellent dancing skills, they are traditionally the makers of incredible masks and statues. It's because of these splendid humans and their struggles and dreams of a better and peaceful life that we've expanded the Gorilla Highlands Initiative into Congo. Their country is absurdly rich in mineral and other resources, but unfortunately, not to the nation's benefit. It's attracted looting for decades, first by a selfish Belgian king, and then by a colorful dictator, and finally by opportunistic neighboring countries and foreign investors, taking advantage of the political chaos and greed. But there's a different kind of natural richness found as well. Congo's endemic animals are not limited to the growers, gorillas, and the bonobos, a long-legged pygmy chimpanzee. There's also the okapi, or the zebra giraffe, and the Congo peacock. With over 400 species of mammals and over 1,000 bird species, the DRC could not be more abundant. Its rainforest is the second largest in the world. In the show notes, you'll find a superb collection of 29 images from the DRC many of them by Congolese masters of photography. But let's get back to Amy. Bonobos are typically found in really dense primary forest. And this area is a forest savanna mosaic. So it's a totally different habitat. And for a long time, people said, there's no way bonobos occur here. But a lot of the villagers kept saying, yeah, there are bonobos here. They're in my backyard. You know, like somebody needs to come out here and study them. And bonobos are very different to follow than gorillas because they do travel on the ground, but they spend most of their time up in the trees. So it was a lot more like my experience working with little monkeys, except you have these big apes up in the tree. And I thought, well, you know, they're big, so they'll be easier to follow than these cryptic little monkeys. And man, was I wrong. Um, they're very hard to follow because they move so fast through the canopy. Great apes throughout Africa are heavily hunted um, for bushmeat, and they're also hunted for the pet trade. In this particular community in Malebo with the Bateke, uh, there's a local taboo against killing bonobos. So they ha they really regard the bonobos as special. They believe that they're, you know, our ancestors, um, close relationship to ancestors, so they don't hunt them. The community has been very interested and very engaged in wanting to protect them. So the project was trying to work with these local communities to get more deeply involved with bonobo conservation and become a part of that with the intention of creating an ecotourism project to bring tourists in to see the bonobos and to also support local communities. I'm ashamed to say that as a Ugandan who lives so close, who lives within the Gorilla Highlands, I've never actually been out in the forest. But then when you speak about it, it it's like... It makes everything sound so magical. Yeah, thank you, Kahiri, for such saying such sweet things. Um, you know, for me, I, I think since I was born, and probably even before I was born, um, I've always had a really intense connection with animals. I've always known from a very young age that I was going to work with animals, and I didn't necessarily know in what capacity, but, you know, my, my path towards being a field biologist certainly isn't anything surprising. I'm always a big rooter for the underdog. You know, I like, I'm always the one that takes in animals that are missing an eye or, you know, missing a leg. And I like the ones that don't 
typically attract most people's attention. And before I went to see the gorillas, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I mean, I think I've always wanted to see gorillas. I think everybody probably wants to see them, but it wasn't as drawn maybe as some other people. And then when I saw them for the first time, hands down, I think they're the most incredible animal on the planet. I just, I, I fell in love with them. And I've worked with a lot of different animals and gorillas are just, they have a very special place in my heart. When you study the social behavior of animals and you're spending so much time, I mean, all day, every day with these animals over years, and you get to know these individuals so well, and especially with social animal where you get that, you know, really special privilege of seeing into their lives, seeing their social interactions, how they spend their day, how they engage with each other. And then really when you, when you learn their personalities, um, that's what really draws you in. People often romanticize field work and they think that it's the most incredible thing in the world. And to me it is, but it, it comes with costs and it comes with sacrifices that I think a lot of people don't think about. When you're with these animals and you get these magical moments like I had with Nabonga, it's just that reinforcer to me that it's all worth it. You know, all these sacrifices that you make to be there are worth it a million times over. Amy, I'm just really, really appreciating everything that you're saying because, I mean, give you a bit of context, I come from the Bachiga people who are southwest of Uganda and we are farming people, in, we grow crops and um, for us animals are looked at as, you know, property, so cows, sheep, goats, chicken, so we don't ascribe a lot of personality to them. Maybe except in the folk stories, then you hear a folk story that had talking animals and that sort of thing. The way that you talk about them for me right now is really, really special and I believe I'm learning a lot. And Miha, if I'm quiet, that's just because I'm just, I'm listening, I'm just taking it in. I would like to invite Turinawe Moses to represent the Virungas, the volcanoes in which gorilla tracking happens with mountain gorillas. And I'm sure he has a lot of experience, good and bad, with communities, working with communities and such. Yes, thank you. I've been listening and thank you, Ami, for your nice presentation. I've also learned, as Kahil said, I would start by saying, even if we have these ones who are poaching, we don't get poachers poaching these mountain gorillas. Uh, if you look around the, these protected areas, the communities have really, if there were no gorillas, I don't know how they would be. They have really understood uh, that the gorillas is their livelihood. If there were no gorillas, you would not see uh, mushrooming craft shops, you would not see hotels around, you would not see projects coming in from uh, various NGOs. Uh, sorry, Moses, I know that occasionally you organize visits by local communities to the gorillas. How does that work and how do they react to actually being close to this animal that they just hear about and it's so important in their life, but they don't actually get in touch with it? Let me give an, a testimony. Uh, we had the Banyakigezi Convention in, in Lubanda, so we organized a quiz whereby we asked some questions. And then the first eight people to answer questions were, were offered an offer to come and track gorilla, mountain gorillas in Mugainga. Those were people from the villages who are not even in sort of coming to the park and seeing these animals. So the experience was amazing. 
and some of them even became our ambassadors and they said no we are going to tell people even if we see tourists moving around parking there we shall tell them that you go and see the mountain gorillas that was a wonderful addition to what we are discussing also leads us to the big topic of today's podcast and that simply is how communities and animals can not just coexist but effectively help each other and i know that amy has a lot to say about her experience running community projects and i would just invite her to you know spill the beans so much of what gets portrayed in community projects are you know all these amazing benefits and of course there are benefits because we wouldn't be doing it if there weren't benefits but what i want to talk about a little bit more are uh, the realities of it and how hard it is to do community work and as i get deeper and deeper into the conservation world and you know particularly with my current work with wolves kind of the mantra that keeps coming up for me is you've got to go slow to go fast and I hate that sometimes because it doesn't resonate with the way that I like to work. I want to, you know, I like to go in, I like to get my boots on the ground and just delve into all the things and and try to make these projects work. And thinking about the work it, with bonobos in the community forest, you know, we we were trying to set up this ecotourism project and I just want to highlight how hard it is to do these projects and to do them well, to do them sustainably and to do them in ways where the communities really do benefit from what you're trying to do. When you're working in rural communities like where I was in Western DRC with um in Malabo, you know, it's it's very hard to access resources there. And so, you know, this is a, a population of people that are living in extreme poverty, you know, just getting food day to day is a huge struggle. And then we're going in with this big idea of creating this big ecotourism project to bring in foreigners to come and see bonobos to get to this place. It's much easier than other places where bonobos occur. It's it's in fact the only place where tourists can easily a visit wild bonobos um but even there it was incredibly challenging the logistics of it were incredibly challenging and that means that it's going to be really expensive to get there and so you know when most of the people that are coming in are higher end clients you know people who are going to pay a lot of money to charter this flight to get there those kinds of people tend to want certain accommodations and that's just not possible there so the tourism to get it going was very slow and one of the issues with the communities is that you know they're they're hearing us come in saying oh you know you need to protect your forest and protect these bonobos so that tourists are going to want to come but they don't actually see that for a long time can i provoke you for just a moment usually natural scientists are very much in favor of quick simple and other things that you can't do as a social scientist because once you deal with people it gets much more complex politics the society everything comes in is that also part of what you were talking about or am i missing my mark nope that's exactly what i was talking about ecotourism although it can be great can also have a lot of negative impacts you know it can have a big ecological footprint and so just you know in some ways thinking the the travel that has to go into getting to these places to see animals can be a big ecological footprint and then you know thinking like about gorillas 
they're constantly surrounded by people. And do you think that they enjoy that? They can get habituated to it and they can tolerate it, but do they enjoy it? Does it affect their social dynamics? Does it make them move more? And then in places like community forests, where certain community members are allocating portions of their forest to great ape conservation, not every community member, you know, or in surrounding communities are necessarily in agreement with that. So you've got in Malabo, there were 13 local communities that we were working with, but only three of them had made the transition to allocating portions of their forest to great ape conservation. And there can be a lot of contention and a lot of um, disputes between neighboring communities. Uh, another big thing with great ape ecotourism is that great apes we know we are very closely related to them, which means a lot of things, but it, one of the big things is that we share and can pass diseases to them. And so there's a big risk as you get more and more people visiting great apes that we can transmit diseases and you can actually wipe out populations very quickly from a respiratory illness. So there's impacts from tourism there that need to be considered. I would like to ask Moses because of the particular situation where they basically have one habituated gorilla group that they need to look after as the most important thing in the world. How do these concerns enter your daily life? Uh, as has, Ami has said, the health of the gorillas is one of our key issues that we have to look at. Uh, we do a routine uh, daily monitoring of these gorillas by our staff, whereby they, every, every day they go in the field. And the first thing they do uh, is to cross-check the nests, uh, to check the droppings, whether there is any sign of uh, unhealthy behavior, maybe there is diarrhea, there is something, they've observed some individual coughing. So that is done on a daily basis. Because of COVID, you also introduced uh, face masks. Do you think there's ever going to be the time for those masks to be removed again, or is this now the new standard? It is going to be a new standard to remain, because at first the issue was the gorillas would be nervous, they would be shy and run away by seeing the people in masks. But now they already used the masks and they, we tried it, they never ran away. Marcus, you've been quite quiet, but for sure you have thoughts. <laughs> Always. Uh, you know, tourism is, is a business, right? And I, I completely agree. Uh, and, and I write about this quite often that, you know, of the various land uses available to local communities, you know, agriculture, mining, logging, there's no doubt that tourism is the most compatible with conservation. But it doesn't mean that it's without friction. So it's a very fine line. It's a very fine balance. And, and the other perspective I would just bring in is that, you know, we, we tend to focus so much on Africa with questions like this and forget what it's like where a lot of us who come to Africa to see wildlife, uh, you know, what, what's happened in our homes where the tolerance for wildlife that create any havoc or cause economic damage to us is almost zero, right? I mean, in, in Sweden, if, if a wolf kills sheep, uh, it's most likely going to get shot, right? And we get very upset when somebody does something similar in Uganda or in South Africa, um, but aren't quite as willing to be forgiving and understanding and tolerant ourselves. So it is important to remember that lives can be at stake. And yes, we need to protect the animals. We need to 
uh, protect the natural environments, but we need to keep in mind that we are not the ones carrying the burden of having elephants in our gardens. People, let me just say that I've had a wonderful time. I've connected with so much that you are talking about, Amy, and with so much that Marcus, you are talking about as well. And I think that my curiosity has been piqued. The Africans in the southwest of Uganda and mostly in the Gorilla Highlands region, we uh, have quite a bit of cultural interaction with animals from more of an animistic point of view, you know, where you believe an animal is your spirit friend. So I know, for example, in northern Uganda, the Acholis believe the elephants are their spirit friend because apparently they led the way, they trampled on the weeds, on the, on the rushes, and they, and they paved the way, basically, for them to come into northern Uganda where they settled, and so they call themselves Kodipaliech, or seeds of the elephant. They don't attack elephants, they don't kill elephants. We've got tribes that have monkeys as their cultural totems, and so it doesn't matter how much the monkey tramples the field, steals the grain, they won't touch the monkey. I'm not sure, but I, in my crazy mind, I think to myself, there must be a way to tap into this culture to create more friendship with animals, maybe. Anyway, thank you all very much. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Moses. And as we've been talking about conservation, as we say goodbye from Miha, myself, and the rest of the team, I'll leave you with these thoughts. If we learn to live together With all nature and all us together If we could learn to love one another And find a balance then we would see Africa, breathe Africa, see Africa, yeah. la 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 la. See Africa, breathe Africa, see Africa, yeah.